Welcome to the Movement Underground Radio with your hosts, Mike Stella and Anthony Pranzo. What do high-performance athletes and people have in common? High-performance mindsets. We are here to take an underground look at the stories behind the athletes, therapists, trainers, and people who push their own limits so that we may expand our own. Take a deep dive underground with us in three, two, one. All right, welcome to the Movement Underground Radio. This is Mike Stella. Alongside Anthony Pranzo. And uh, we're really excited. This is episode, technically two, but it's really episode one. This is going to be our first dive into the podcast world. And for this one, we're really just going to kind of, Anthony and I are just going to wrap. And we wanted to do a little bit of like a a Mike Stella origin story. Um, So we alluded to that in the last little quick clip episode that we put up but um that's probably the number one question i get online besides uh what kind of gloves do i wear <laughs> um which is like how do i how did i end up doing what i'm doing like now sense. yeah right so so yeah um well before we do that i'd like to know a little bit about anthony pranzo uh and kind of tell us a little bit of your origin yeah. story i mean we've been working together for just about just under five years now, I think, right? Quite a while, yeah. So, it, which is crazy because it feels like it's been so fast. But like, and and you know, you've evolved in this industry really quickly. Um, so yeah, tell us like wh- you know who you are, what your background is, and obviously your profession because I think people want to know that too. They see you with me all the time on our social platforms, but maybe they don't get enough because a lot of times you end up being the guy behind the camera for me, um, which is a huge thank you because a lot of whatever you want to call it, the success on social media, a lot of that was due to Anthony being there um, and helping me. You know, the the content really didn't start like really rolling and getting and building momentum until you really joined me and you were, you always had great ideas for how to frame content and what made good content. So yeah, tell us about that. Yeah, man, you're like the Gary Vee of, of this, this industry, you know? That's so what I'm I trying saw, to do. I just saw, big, I saw, big praise. I, well, it's just the truth, you know, I just saw, <laughs> I just saw the talent. So yeah, I'm um, a massage therapist, personal trainer, mobility coach here at the Movement Underground. And like you said, I've been in this industry for since about 2016, right. working alongside yourself and, you know, behind the camera for a long time while I was in school and still learning a ton and and really figuring out that feedback loop and figuring out what kind of works. And, right. and you know, year one, which would be last year professionally. Sure. Um, now it's year two and I'm I'm pretty excited to to keep going but let's talk about you my man what do we what do we have <laughs> well, coming no, up again real really quickly i i want to i want to say that when it comes to anthony when anthony first approached me um i had put on like my instagram stories and i had made a flyer that i posted at his massage therapy school um because i was looking for an intern i was looking for some extra help like at the time recovery lab had started to pick up a little bit and this i just want to you know again like for you to have evolved so quickly when we originally decided to have you intern with me, I was like, okay, we'll do like 10 or 12 hours a week. And like Anthony was there for like 30 hours a week. Like you were just always there. Like you, you made it a priority, even though you had other clinical, um, you know, requirements that were outside of what we were doing. Like you made it a priority to be around all the time. Um, and I think that really expedited your evolution as a therapist. And like you said, you got to like really watch and observe kind of what was working for me clinically and then since then you've melded that experience into what you've learned obviously in your massage practice and your massage school melded with like Mm -hmm. the frc principles and you've really created your your own signature really well within the philosophy of what we're doing clinically here and i think that's awesome i just wanted to say that because like again like anthony's origin story begins with going above and beyond what was asked of you and you were seeking that for yourself and your own career growth, which I really admire. And that was one of the things I admired about you early on um, and, and why I made it so that you were absolutely going to be a big part of this moving forward. I really appreciate that, man. Really appreciate that. But it was just good timing. It was The timing, timing really worked out. And it was a right. point in time in my life where I was really curious about something new. Right. And I was listening to a lot of um, self-help things and just, just a little bit of story, quick story about yeah, that please. and how I found yeah. to work with you. And I was just saying that, uh, I could apply this to directly. It's uh, macro patience, micro speed. So, you know, real quick. Gary I, v. Yeah, Gary Love V, of course, of course. 
sorry, twice in one. All right, I promise it won't always be about Gary Vee, but this really applies. So I was in school. I had stumbled upon your content, a video. I, I was like, okay, this is really cool. This is what I think I want to do in, you know, three years or so. So we started following you, um, looked at where your location was, drove by, you know, a little imagery Creepy. right there. Creepy. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, it's right down the block. That's weird. Right. That's super weird. Right down the block. Serendipitous in a way. Yeah. You know, so I started paying attention, found your YouTube channel, watched every YouTube video, took note. You know, I'm like really was into it, you know? So seven months later, I'm in school and I see a flyer up in the hallway. Seven months later, see the flyer, reached out right away, like yeah. DM'd you right away. That flyer and, you know, was up in your school for a day. <laughs> a day. So that's just, uh, so I really live by that saying, you know, macro patience, micro speed. And that's how I relate it to how that wound up working. That's so funny too, because when I, when I asked them to put that flyer up, I really had very kind of, I didn't have very high hopes to find, like, I just wanted somebody to come in like intern because I needed some help. I just needed another set of hands. And, uh, and what it turned into from there obviously was an internship for you, but really a friendship. Like you're my boy. Like we, Anthony and I like hang out like and go surfing together and do stuff outside of work, which I really enjoy. I think that's been a great part of, you know, us as a team and being able to work together on a day to day basis. But also I think last year, especially we've done a good job of kind of like, you know what, we're not going to be in work mode right now. We're going to go surf and we're going to kind of enjoy life. And like, obviously we have a strong friendship and, and enjoy that friendship outside of like the confines of always serving other people, which is something we both love, but it can be draining. And so I think it was really cool last year where first year of the movement underground, we, we made that a priority to kind of seek other things to enrich our lives. And we did so together, which is really cool. It's awesome. Um, it's awesome. Yeah, man, that's dope. I love that. <laughs> All right. On to, on to what this episode's really about. Right. Right. So tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you have going on this weekend at the Movement Underground? So, yeah, okay, that's great. Maybe that's a great way to start. We'll start with like what's happening right now. Um, so right now, like obviously we just finished this really cool office build. And for those of you guys who are new listeners or maybe haven't seen my content in the past. So the Movement Underground got a little bit of a upgrades. So we, we extended into a new office, which is now our podcast studio. So you guys are seeing that on the YouTube version of this on the video version. And we built this specifically to obviously be able to serve this or have this niche in our in our content. Um, but what we're doing right now, obviously, I'm an athletic trainer and I'm really passionate about that. Um, not always, I, I wasn't always super pa- passionate about like the athletic training profession. I think for a bunch of years, I had been really disheartened with it. Um, so, athletic training, for those of you who don't know, is a healthcare uh, is a healthcare profession, um, and athletic trainers are c- most commonly found in like secondary school, high school setting, colleges, uh, professional sports teams, you're seeing it start to infiltrate or expand into like industrial settings. So an athletic trainer kind of is trained in, you know, basically a lot of similar things like a physical therapist would be. So evaluation of injuries, um, you know, injury treatment, diagnosis, rehabilitation, strength and conditioning. Um, But we're also trained in like acute care, trauma management, right? So it's kind of like a medic slash Pete physical therapist, you know what I mean? Slash personal trainer or strength coach. Like, so we, we get an experience in all that stuff, which is great. Um, but in, in terms of like professional, uh, development, there's not a whole lot there, mm-hmm. or at least there wasn't when I was coming up, you know, 10 plus years ago, meaning like you were really pigeonholed into those settings. You really couldn't expand outside of that. And so, um, the unique thing about my journey has been that I've, moved outside of the traditional roles and into this more of a private treatment model, which isn't very common, but it's starting to get there. We're starting to see a lot more of that, which is awesome. And that's really reinvigorated me. I think seeing that, you know, I originally started putting up content selfishly, truthfully. Um, It was for selfish reasons. I knew it was important for my business. Um, I definitely suffered from imposter syndrome in a lot of ways where I was really nervous about putting up content. Um, I was worried about how people would perceive it and perceive me being an athletic trainer and kind of really diving mm-hmm. into this private sector. And obviously the, you know, that's kind of hit, oh, ancient history now. So I, st- I put my first YouTube video up like five years ago um, and it's been re- overwhelmingly positive, uh, the feedback, which has been really cool. And, um, and what I've gotten from that is a lot of athletic trainers that have reached out to me and said like, Hey man, like you've really inspired me or even 
outside of that profession, physical therapists, chiropractors, massage therapists, personal trainers, right? So that blew me away, really. It's still to this day to think that like we're doing a podcast now because people actually care to listen to what I have to say kind of blows me away still. So I think that's a good thing. But yeah, so um, I'm also a rock tape instructor, which um, something is relatively new in my life, right? Two years, I've been teaching for rock tape, really like a year and a half to two years and love, 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 love that. Um, You know, I love teaching more than I thought I would. It's just really exciting to go out on the road and meet new people. And, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously rock tape, rock tapes content is absolutely fire. Those courses are fantastic. Um, Anybody who's ever taken one pretty much agrees with that. And so to be able to teach that content and really get into the education side kind of found like a second passion. Right. So like for me, like that's kind of what this is about partly is being able to educate on a different medium, expanding into this like education. So obviously you guys should expect to see like courses coming out from me and the movement underground. You guys should expect to see a lot more of that kind of stuff. So really excited, man. Uh, this weekend we have a class, a rock tape course here. We're going to host blades and blades advance. So that'll be uh, March 14th and 15th, which is this coming weekend. So we're right now it's the 10th and we're filming this. This is our first real episode. Um, so we're going to do four courses per year out of this location. So in Farmingdale, New York is where we're located. Um, so if you're in our area, you want to come swing by and take a rock tape class, definitely go check out uh, the website. You can go to my website and see all the ones that I'm teaching, which is obviously the ones that we're teaching here as well. So that's MikeStellaMovement.com. Cool. If you could just give us, what, so what do we expect? What's to be expected when you take a blades course? Uh, just okay. real quick. Yeah, real yeah. quick. Yeah. So like me, we could always go deeper into that or you guys check out the rock tape podcast also is a really cool way right. to, to learn more about that. But blades is instrument assisted soft tissue mobilization. It's, it. you know, for those of you who don't, or maybe are non-clinical listeners, it, it's, you know, when you use the stainless steel massage tools, um, for soft tissue treatment, something that I've been doing for over a decade. Um, it's one of my favorite modalities. Um, so, you know, we, but the rock tape perspective is really a lot less mechanical and a lot more neurological, like what's happening to the nervous system, the brain, how do these, uh, how do these mechanical stimuli get interpreted by the brain and make these crazy changes in pain perception, movement capacity, um, soft tissue compliance, all these different things that we can kind of achieve through that medium. And, and is it an end all fix all? No. And we don't say that mm-hmm. as rock tape, but it's definitely a great modality. So really kind of diving deep into the science of touch and its role in like the neurophysiology of a human and right. how that affects right. human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, we look at like the psychosocial side, which is like, you know, making sure you realize that you're not just treating a meat suit you know, that there's a person attached to that and you got to take that into consideration anytime you touch somebody, whether it's with your hands or with a tool. Um, and then obviously into like the meat and potatoes, like the technical side of like, here's how you do it. Um, so that's really what a rock tape blades weekends mostly about. So it's a lot of fun to teach those courses. Sure. I can imagine. We've taken it. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, so let's get into, um, Mike, when did you first know you wanted to be an athletic trainer? Or what piqued your interest? Um, you know? What piqued my interest? So, yeah, I guess that goes back to high school. Origin story. Yeah, this is the origin story. And, and I've told this story a few times in, like, bits and pieces. I've never done it in its real entirety, which is, I guess, kind of our goal for today. But um, I started, as most athletic trainers do, which is with a personal experience, personal injury. You know, um, I, I don't think I had considered sports medicine as a career really before that I was looking more along the lines like architecture and engineering truthfully um when I was in high school and then um so yeah I was a lacrosse player and I was a pretty highly recruited lacrosse player Uh, I'm not gonna blow smoke up my own ass but go ahead I was pretty good I was a really (laughs) good player you know I was one of the top midfielders on Long Island at the time my senior year Mm -hmm. um so I had some preseason accolades and you know I was kind of a player to watch on in this area and mostly because of my athleticism, you know, I wasn't the best stick handler, but I was really fast. Like I could think my best time, my best 40 time in high school is like a four, six, five. So I was like, wow, I can move. Right. And you know, my senior year weighing like 185, I can move. And I was a decently big dude. So, you know, that makes for a pretty good lacrosse player, even if you're not the best stick handler. Um, and so what I ended up happening was, you know, I was really crushing it. My senior year it was really kind of coming to my own, Fifth game senior year, blow the knee out completely. Mm. So it was a collision injury. Um, You know, basically, 
you know, we were playing defense. We had a fast break opportunity the other way. So I was playing defense against the guy that was holding the ball. They were subbing men on the field. For those of you guys who don't know lacrosse, it doesn't really matter. It's kind of like hockey in that way where you can sub players on mm-hmm. and off when you have possession. And um, so I basically stripped this kid. We were playing Levittown Division. I'll never forget this. Pick up the ball. Fast break the other way. So I'm like, I'm going to take a hit because this kid's lining me up from like midfield. He's like sprinting straight at me. So I just dish it, uh, take the hit, but he stepped on my foot when he hit me. So my whole body like went and turned, but my foot remained planted in the ground. So at that point, I tore basically my ACL, MCL. Um, And then the first thing I tried to do is get up, right? So I hit the ground. I tried to pop up. First step I took, knee just like slid off, right? So like I completely, basically dislocated essentially, um, tore the PCL, tibial plateau fracture, which means that basically what happened was when the knee buckled, the two bones, the condyles of the femur and the tibia came in contact under velocity and pressure and basically had compression fractures on the, on those two surfaces, which led to cartilage damage and some other stuff. Um, so at that point I hadn't committed to any college to play. So I didn't know where I was going. It was my senior year. Cause I was torn. I had a couple of offers. I didn't know where to go. You know, like what 18 year old is really like, Oh, I know exactly what I'm going to do and how I'm going to do it. Right. Few and so, far between. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so I had the knee reconstructed and you know, obviously like our high school athletic trainer was like a part-time athletic trainer. She was really helpful for me in the early on and um, got to work with a bunch of physical therapists and athletic trainers were really responsible for kind of rehabbing me and Marist college was the last D one school to really have any offer for me left. And they happen to have an athletic training program. So that's literally how it happened. It was just, I want to do this instead of construction or architecture or whatever. I was just kind of like not into that anymore. And, and I never looked back, you know, Mm. it's always been, so a lot of like, you know, even my continuing education has always been really like circled around, that injury and like have because I had issues for years after that the knee was never the same I was never the same athlete I did everything everybody told me to do and then some Mm -hmm. like I woke up in surgery I was doing like quad sets in the hospital and like the nurses are like you can't do that you've got a nerve block you got (laughs) to stop and I'm trying to like squeeze my quad and I'm like all drugged up and like out of my mind (laughs) breaking staples out of my knee like a savage (laughs) um so yeah and so like I you know a lot of it was like I couldn't get to that prior level of performance and it really bothered me you know so I was always seeking like other answers and that's really kind of when I dove down like the strength and conditioning rabbit hole a little bit more like Mm -hmm. after college um because I was still struggling and that like classic rehab didn't do anything for me I really didn't provide me enough value to get back to where I was comfortable with playing again and it really did leave a lot of mental and emotional scars too like I had a lot of identity issues and you know, I just like, you can call it the yips. Like even when I got to college, I was like, couldn't even catch and throw because I was so lacking in any kind of confidence. Meanwhile, you know, reverse time for a year and I would just sprint down the field and, you know, do ridiculous things because, and I wouldn't even think about it. So like really got in my own head after that, because I knew that I wasn't quite as athletic. I wasn't as, as athletic, not even close. Um, so yeah, so I got into athletic training and, and, um, I did that for four years and really was always kind of like searching for an additional answer to why, like even like that education was really basic and it wasn't, you know, like basic rehab, basic Mm -hmm. treatment. So, you know, really took a lot of outside research to start to take those next steps. It's a really tough time to go through something like that, but sure. It's really powerful. Like, you know, the gift of injury really, really set you onto this course, it seems. Yeah, it is. Yeah, absolutely. So I don't regret it at all, obviously. Like, you know, it led me to what I'm really passionate about. And I've always kind of had this mantra of like, no athlete's going to slip through the cracks Mm -hmm. on my watch. Because that's exactly what happened to me. I slipped through the cracks. It was bad timing. You know, so like when I got to Marist, it wasn't like a Marist injury. You know, so a lot of colleges, they won't treat you or rehab you or work with you if your injury happened outside the school. And a lot of that isn't because they didn't want to. It wasn't like they didn't want to help me. It was resources, time, money, you know. And so, like, you're, 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 they're doing what they need to do and what their jobs are. But that did not include really helping me much. So I was, like, kind of just working off of basic programs that I could find online or stuff that people had given me. And, like, I didn't fact check it. I just kind of went in the weight room and tried to do my best and did not do a good job pre-instagram <laughs> this is yeah oh yeah pre, so this is like 2004 right 
Right. So like YouTube was a thing, but like on a really small scale, mm-hmm. like there wasn't a ton of YouTube stuff. Like you can go Google search stuff, but like not to the level that we can find information or connect with people that we can now. So I think that's important to understand for context Huge. wise. Yes. Yeah, so that was like 2004. What is it? 2020. That's so 16 years ago, which is crazy to think about that. Um, but yeah, you know, and so graduated first job was university of Florida. So, um, was really cool. Um, my program director at the time at Marist told me that it was a waste of my time to apply because I would never get that job. And wait a second. Yeah. Waste of your time to yeah. apply. And you That's still what apply. Program director said, yeah, she was just like, she's like, you'll never get that job. Like you're, you know, like they don't have a very good program, blah, blah, blah. Like she was just trying to convince me not to do it. And so I was really like disheartened because I really wanted, I think, like from high school, I wanted like a big school experience, right? So like one of the offers that I had had was at Syracuse and bigger school, like that lacrosse is kind of a big thing. And so Maris was a lot smaller, didn't really have that big school vibe. So like when I was looking for my first job, I kind of wanted to get that experience, like see what a big school is all about. So like all the schools that I had picked to apply to for grad assistantships to were all big schools, like SEC, ACC, um, you know, maybe a couple of Atlantic 10 schools, but mostly like the big East, like big conference schools, 50,000 plus students. Like that's kind of what I was looking for. Um, my goal was really to be like a professional or elite collegiate athletic trainer. Like professionally, that's kind of what I thought I would be doing. And then, um, so I went down to like my, my actual athletic trainer who was a clinical instructor for me. So like when you're in a program like that, whether it's physical therapy or, athletic training or massage therapy. You have to do clinical hours as part of your education. And so one of my clinical instructors, uh, I told her what my program director had said. And she was just like, that's ridiculous. She's like, she was like pissed. She was pissed that my program director would say that to me. She's like, let me ask you this. She's like, if you got offered a job, would you take it and actually go? And I said, yeah. She's like, then apply. What do you have Love to, her. what do you have to lose? Like you have nothing to lose at that point. Just go for it. And so I was like, you know what? You're right. Screw it. Went for it. And I got a call. I got a phone interview. And that was like a couple of weeks later. So I got interviewed on the phone for a grad assistantship. I got an offer with the football team. And I was like, I'm in, man. That's awesome. Um, And so, you know, I moved down to Florida. I basically packed all my worldly possessions in order of importance on the front lawn and packed my tiny little Pontiac Grand Prix two-door I had at the time with whatever could fit. And whatever didn't fit didn't go. And I just drove down to Florida with no place to live. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I'll figure it out. I got 22 hours of driving to make calls and figure out where I'm going to live. And that's what I did. So I just totally went for it. Ended up working with the track and field team, which was really freaking cool. Um, And that's, you know, uh, Florida was really the experience that got me into manual therapy. You know, so like in school, we were kind of taught and the mindset of manual therapy was like, we're not massage therapists. So if you're an athlete and you're coming in asking for a rub down, we basically be like, get out. Mm-hmm. You know, we do like stim and ultrasound, like clinical stuff. Like we don't do massage. What is that? And so when we got to Florida, totally different mindset. Like it was hands on with the athletes all the time, especially track and field is like, really it's ingrained within that sports culture is like, you see massage tables set up inside the, you know, like at the track, like un- usually under a tent, and all the teams, athletic trainers and massage people are just like working on athletes every all day, all for the whole meet, right? So it's like basically like a pit crew. And you're like tuning up race cars, right? It, that's exactly the best way I could describe that experience. And so Andy Clock, who is still at the University of Florida, he's the athletic trainer for track and field, was basically like, what's your experience with manual therapy? I said, virtually none. I, you, know, I can, you know, I know what massage is and basic Swedish massage is what we were taught in school. And he's like, okay, great. This is what we, this is how we do a flush and this is what it is. And you're going to work on all the healthy athletes every day. That's your job. You don't touch an injured athlete until I tell you. And so basically that's what I did every day. The athletes would, you know, they would come throughout the day, like track and fields, like hundred plus kids on that team. So they would practice at different times throughout the day, different, you know, events would practice and they would come in the athletic training. So like every hour you'd get like a fresh crop of athletes that would be popping in. My job is just to like, lotion up and just rub them down basically like for recovery. And so that was like, but like that really exposed me to hands-on treatment a and B 
I was watching him work with the injured athletes and instantly changed the way that they moved and instantly uh, like he would he would work on people that got on the table in pain and then he they'd pop up and be like oh it feels good no pain I was like what I was like say what <laughs> like that's what I want to do and sure. so I was like hooked at that point like yeah. anything manual therapy related I could digest at that point was what I did and this again this is going back to like now this is like 2008 right so height of the recession mm-hmm. but it was also when that when Florida won a national championship in football so I gotta be Got to be a part of and basketball too, so I got to be a part of both of those experiences, which is really freaking cool, you know. So again, it was just working with high-level athletes at high volume with no restrictions in terms of money or budget or time. It was like my job was to be there with the athletes all day, every day, and get results by any means necessary. Didn't matter what it cost. It didn't matter what it time it would take. If you can give your athlete a one percent benefit. That's what we did. And that's also when I got exposed to like kinesiology taping. So back in 08 is when I really started using kinesio tape. Didn't understand anything about it outside of the athletes liked it. And they would say that they felt better. So I was like, okay, great. That's enough evidence for me at at that point. Because it wasn't like we had to worry about billing for it or reimbursement. It was really more just about um, getting that athlete to feel that much better. Huge. Yeah. Oh, man. So huge. For sure. For sure. Um. Results first. Results first. And that was the right. mindset. First class mindset. And, and that's obviously something that I still carry with me to this day. Obviously, we're very hands-on here. I have not changed that at all in that in the 10-plus years since that experience. It's always been about touching people physically, but also touching them mentally and emotionally and using that connection, right? And obviously, the way I frame it and talk about it and explain it to clients and patients has changed from back then because then we used to really think mechanical like we were breaking up tissue and lengthening tissue and we had just a much more mechanical mindset with the with the evidence that was available at that time and that's changed a lot over the last 10 years um which we could save that for another episode i'm not going to go down that rabbit hole too deep Mm -hmm. um so after florida i mean so so florida was actually interesting experience too because truthfully i kind of got screwed over um so I was originally applied to be a grad assistant and I got that offer. And then what had happened was the position that they offered to me became unavailable because they changed it into a full-time staff position. So they literally made up a new job for me. So I I wasn't an intern. I wasn't a full-time assistant yet, but I was like in between. So it was like an interim job. So they wanted to expand the the staff for track and field and add another full-timer. And so basically what they did with me was put me in that job but it was a temporary appointment gotcha right so i knew it was a one-year deal obviously with the chance to negotiate more but it was a one-year deal and then i was going to reapply to school to be a grad assistant right so the difference that for me was the grad assistants at florida were all capped at 40 hours a week they weren't allowed to work more than that therefore they weren't allowed to get paid more than that me i was basically treated as a full-time staff so i was getting paid the same hourly rate but I would get overtime and I was unrestricted. I could work as many hours as, and that's exactly what I did. Like I worked like 60, 80, 90, hundred hours a week Good every Lord. week because like, you know, either they would have like, Hey Mike, we need help with the regional soccer tournament or Hey, we need somebody to cover the spirit squads uh, practice or, and I was just like, all right, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, you know? So I just kept doing that, which was awesome for experience. Sure. And I think that's one of the things that is hard to answer when people ask me like, Oh, how do I, know what I know and how do I do what I do? It's like, I spent a lot of time in the early on, like with, you know, again, like sports medicine in a bubble, not worrying about anything else except for working. And so, which isn't necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. It just is what it is. Um, you know, I cool. certainly wouldn't say that I enjoyed my twenties that much, like in terms of like work life balance. But at that point, my mindset was like, get as much experience and learn as much as I can and like really just be the best athletic trainer or sports medicine guy I could be. So, so really that, that experience really fueled that. And so what ended up happening though, was there was three of us, right? So three interns essentially for two spots the next year. And I ended up being the odd guy out. Um, and it wasn't for, it was for kind of political reasons and things that I want to really get into, but like the classic stuff that happens, like here's the truth. I deserved one of those spots. And you can ask any of the staff that's at Florida now that was there at the time, and they will 
probably say exactly the same thing. That's not. But what ended up happening was this, this the decision was made with some political and social influences, and I ended up being kind of the odd man out. Um, and again, there's nobody really to blame. It was just a kind of the hiring practices at the time. And so that's when I took the job at George Washington. And like, you know, my friends that are still at UF or people that I know will be like, they changed a lot of what, how they hire because of that, what had happened. They were like, man, we can't believe like, like you were the one that got screwed out. Even after like you were uncapped in hours and everybody else had to only work 40 hours a week. You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. it was definitely, but you know, really important life lesson and career lesson, which was like, just because you work hard, just because you, are good at what you do doesn't necessarily mean that other people are going to recognize that. And I don't think that they didn't recognize it, but again, it wasn't, there's always other factors. It's not just performance. You know, there's other things and other ways that people make decisions. And so I had to learn that lesson early on. It was really disappointing. Um, you know, it was really hard for me. I was really pissed off and then, uh, ended up at George Washington university where, so I got into school there and I was a grad assistant there. And that was really cool because GW gave me a lot of autonomy. They were like, listen, we're a mid-major school. Don't have a lot of money. We don't have a lot of time. Do what you can with what you have. Let us know if you need anything. So they really let me practice kind of the way I saw fit, which was really cool. So a lot of manual therapy. They didn't like, you know, and uh, something that people have told me is like, you know, I'm in a setting where my direct supervisor doesn't know about manual therapy or doesn't agree with this philosophy and so i'm not allowed to do it Oof. right yeah, so imagine yeah. like you know you're a massage doctor come here i'm like oh i don't want you to do any tools i don't want you doing anything besides these, these three things right and if i put that cap on you what kind of experience that would be you know what i mean it was just like stifling like you you know like if you can't expand or grow professionally like or explore those curiosities not at gw that was they were so good with that and even like my bosses like my supervisors the people who are in full-time roles would like call me up and be like, Hey Mike, I got this athlete that, you know, I'm struggling with. Can you come in and help us out? So that was really cool. That's so really everybody cool. was on like an even playing field, even the GAs to the staff people. Um, our head athletic trainer was awesome in that regard. Chris Henley. So huge props to you, Chris. Um, if you're listening for whatever reason, but that was an awesome experience. Got my master's and then personal reasons kind of brought me back to New York. My mom was sick, you know, so like that really, kind of inspired me to come back to New York. So I took a job at LIU Brooklyn as an athletic trainer. And from there, it just was burnout city. Lots of hours. I was making no money. I was making like 29,000 a year. Um, I think was what my salary was. So like after taxes, I'd take home like 1500 bucks a month. And my student loan payment was a thousand bucks a month. (laughs) So I just struggled financially. So I was bartending on the side, like just ton of extra side jobs and working in addition to like kind of basically, basically to fund my career. I had to bartend to fund my career um, so that I could pay my bills. And, um, you know, so again, like a lot of work, a lot of time went into that. So I I was there for one year and then I just couldn't make it work. You know, Um, I basically asked for more money and they're like, okay, we'll give you a little bit more. But like, you know, you did a great job, Mike. We don't want to lose you, but here's like $3,000 extra. And I was like, that does nothing for me, really. I mean, that's like $50 or $100 extra a month, you know, net. I was like, it doesn't even put a dent in like fixing the things in my life that need to start to get in line, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was super frustrating. And that's when I really was like F athletic training. I was so Got pissed it. and so disheartened by it for putting all that time and all that effort in to basically come out with nothing, you know, in terms of like career prospects it was like every job that I could apply for at that time was like a $30,000 job for like 60, 80 hours a week. Right. And so, you know, I'm sure there's be a lot of athletic trainers listening. They're like, yep, I know that story well. But I think a lot of people who aren't involved in athletic training don't realize how much education, how much student debt you take on. Same as any other healthcare professional, a lot of clinical hours, a lot of time that you have to put in. But because the, the profession is set up to serve other professions, like that's li- like athletic training is set up to be a subservient role to doctors and PTs and all these other things. And until that changes, you're not, it's, it's basically been a cap, right? And it's a salary cap. So now that status quo of, you know, here's what the, an athletic trainer makes is something that you can really keep quarantined to a certain amount of number because you can't go outside of that. You can't go to a high paying job or the high paying jobs are, there's so few of them that those jobs never turn over. Mm -hmm. 
right? So even we were talking about, like somebody asked me recently, like, you know, professional athletes will come and pay me cash to work with them when they have these providers from their team. And again, not a knock on any professional staff. There's plenty of great people that work in the pro ranks, but a lot of the mindset is, oh, I work for a professional sports team. I'm the best. Therefore, I don't need to learn anything new or do anything differently than the way I've always done it. Right? And so basically it's stifling new ideas. It's stifling innovation. It's stifling growth in terms of salaries for an entire profession of people. So I'll call that like a race to the bottom. That's what it is. And so I was like, fuck this. Oops. F this. I think we, we can make this an explicit podcast or explicit radio channel. Fuck that. Uh, I took a job at a PT clinic. Okay. In New York City. Right. Won't name names. Um, at first it was great because I was making more money. I was working normal hours. It was like a, I was working one, I was working one to eight, like noon to eight. So it was an eight hour a day job. And that burnt me out for entirely different reasons. Because A, I was treated like a second class citizen in terms of profession. So it's a PT clinic. And again, this is not the norm. This was just my experience. I want to preface this section by saying that because, you know, I work with a lot of physical therapists that I've learned a lot from and that I admire and have no, they do not treat me like that at all in terms of like professional courtesy. Like it's such a great relationship 99% of the time. But in this particular culture, it was set up that the PT was on top and the athletic trainers were assistants essentially like aides. Um, so like my role was I was doing a lot of manual therapy. I was doing a lot of program design. I was doing gait analysis. I was helping the owners like run the business like from a management standpoint, but I was still getting paid like second class citizen. I was still being treated like, oh, you're just an athletic trainer. And so that can infiltrate your mindset really quickly. Like, oh, I'm less than mm-hmm. right. And then I ended up like uh, starting to resent it and like feeling like this is BS and I thought about going back to PT school even though I already had six figures in college debt. So like do I take on another 150 grand to basically do what I'm doing now under a different license profession? And I just couldn't rationalize that, man. I couldn't wrap my head around taking out more student loans cuz they were crushing me at the time. Right? Like I was I was paying my student loans and like having nothing left over like at the end of the month. And so I'm like what's the point of education if you're if it doesn't serve you in any way, you know what I mean? I basically became an indentured servitude to Sally Mae, right? Like I was just working my ass off just to pay the bill. And, uh, and I just couldn't do it. You know, I, I had got as far as to applying to PT schools and chiropractic schools and never took the jump because I was like, I just can't afford it. Like this would literally crush me for the rest of my life. Um, and so started reading up on athletic trainers in private practice couldn't find anything. New York state's laws are super old and draconian and don't really define much, you know, in terms of private practice. So there was no real help there called the state boards called the NATA, which is the athletic training governing body. I called a bunch of people, never got the same answer twice. So finally I just said, fuck it again. And was just like, I'm just going to do my own thing. I was working in the PT clinic. People were getting discharged And they were like, hey, Mike, like really enjoy working with you. Would you train me? Right. So I was like, okay, yeah, for sure. I'll train you and a person, you know, I was a certified strength coach, right? Personal trainer. I'll just train you and have a side hustle just doing that. And, you know, so I'm working with people that are coming off injuries, coming off rehab, coming off surgeries, and they still were having pain and still having movement issues that I knew I could solve using some hands-on treatment. And so for kind of lack of a better course of action. I just started bringing a portable table with me to these personal training clients and starting with a little bit of manual hands-on work and then going into their training. And right then and there, I was like, this is, this is the magic right here is this combo of doing both at the same time with the same person. You know what I mean? Having that continuity from the table to the training and it started to take off to the point where I was making a good enough amount of money doing that on the side part time And then kind of brought this idea back to the PT clinic and was like, hey, like, can we do this model of like where I can work kind of in doing both? And, you know, this is what I have an idea for expanding it. And they were just like, who do you think you are? How dare you suggest anything other than what we do? Just like, well, I mean, and then what they started doing was like, you know, like whenever you're a personal trainer, like you pay a fee to the house, right? You pay your 20 bucks 
of your session fee to the house, which is fine, right? So the members pay their membership, plus I got to pay the fee to the house in the training session, but they never told me what I should be charging. So I got to make up that decision on my own. And then all of a sudden it was $30. Then it was $40. Then it was $50. Then they wanted 50% because they saw me doing well. And I'm just like, what the hell, man? Like just finally starting to claw out of like whatever pit that I was in, like just starting to like my feet are above the ground. And then they're like, they want more, right? They want more. And so that was a really important lesson for me early on was people want to see you do well. Not as good as them though. <laughs> Facts. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, you know, which is why like you and I, you know, going back to like our relationship, it's just why I'm so like, are you getting what you need? Are you sure. happy with what you're doing? Because I don't want you to ever feel that same way because I fucking hated it. Mm-hmm. And I felt like a lesser person because of it. And it really, again, identity was a huge thing. It was hard, you know? So, yeah, I mean, all of that experience kind of, and then kind of coming to fruition with like a former cl- classmate of mine who, had this idea for a sports performance gym and, you know, needed help. And I wanted to do this like private treatment model, which I was starting to like try to put into some CrossFit gyms because I saw an opportunity there. And then it ended up working out where we kind of teamed up and, you know, I won't go too deep into that, but you know, three, it was like, it was like three and a half, four years of working with that former company. And uh, unfortunately had to part ways because that partnership wasn't working out anymore. And you know, which kind of happens in business. So I learned a lot of business lessons that way you know, of what not to do and, you know, the importance of relationships and the importance of like basic systems and obviously agreements and all these other things. And, you know, I think I was just really excited to get out of that scenario where I was struggling and be in a position where I could kind of treat and practice the way that I thought or I saw fit. It was so appealing that I made a lot of mistakes early on. I didn't get a lot of things on paper. I didn't, you know, because this was a friend. This was somebody that I was really close with. And so I just like trusted it at a handshake, you know, and it ended up not working out. Right. I ended up, I got kind of taken for a ride in many respects and wasn't working out on his end either. And, um, it just kind of sucked because it, it ended badly and it it ended kind of ugly, which happens in business, right? It really does happen. And so, um, that led to the underground. So it's a really long story or i mean at least i hope that gives some insight as to no and it's it's, it's you know you, like you gained all the experience you took your education on you took right. all the experience on head down working really hard and then it seemed like you started to find a market and you realized right there's a market for this for what you know right. for what you're good at people need this stuff it, yeah it's, it's interesting it really helps it's interesting too because like even now talking about it and like what you just said like when I was kind of coming up and doing that, there wasn't a, there was no podcasts. There were no Gary V. I mean, Gary V was a thing, but he had wine library. Right. So like, it wasn't even like, here's information for maybe or motivation or inspiration for a, a young, uh, aspiring entrepreneur. Cause I don't even think I would have considered myself an entrepreneur, even when I was doing my in-home stuff. Right. So part of that story of it was like they kept upping my price for like what my fee was. So I started just going to people's houses Right, I was in New York City. So most of these buildings have a gym in the building that is unregulated. Right. So I was like, oh, great. Just train you at your gym in your building. It's convenient for them, which definitely limited how much I could do in a day. Like so if I worked my full day, I might be able to see two clients or three maybe mm-hmm. in the after hours or the before hours, you know, because I had to commute to different locations all over the city with a freaking treatment table and all my stuff and right but it was really awesome because all of a sudden I was making this extra money and I'm like damn man like if I could do this for eight hours a day I'd be crushing it you know which is not how it works out but that's where you start to go in your mind of course which you start doing that math of like oh if I did this eight hours every day this is what I would make Mm -hmm. which is not how it works but (laughs) I can tell you that right now that's not how it works but (laughs) You know, um, I think what that started to show me was exactly what you just said. Is right. I started to identify the niche and I also started to see my own value, you know, within that space. And so that was super inspiring to me early on. And then the deeper I got into it, the more I realized how little people cared that I was, quote unquote, just an athletic trainer. That was That's just the God's honest truth. Nobody ever asked me. They're just like, here's a guy that knows his shit and obviously loves what he does and is passionate about it. And that was always enough for people. It was like, Hey, I'm into this. And I'm also really into like actually helping you. I want to actually help you. 
And all of a sudden it was like creating all these great relationships and they were introduced you to somebody, they refer somebody to you. And it was just organically just grew that way. I had no, even though I have business degree for my graduate school. So I did a, 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 a master's in business management and but a lot of it was just like contracts and sports law and like negotiating and sponsorship. And like, that's what we learned in school. Not a whole lot of like business acumen, truthfully, you know, you don't learn a lot of like how to start a business or and any that of that stuff. G- that was at G- George Washington. Okay. Yeah. Right. So great experience working on like the admin side, but like I didn't really have any idea that like for, in terms of like starting a business, owning a business or like that was the route that I was going to go. I think I maybe at that time when I picked that major was part of it. It's like, hmm, this maybe gives me a little bit of diversity in case I want out of athletic training. You know, I can get a job at like a Nike or like a, maybe like a, a company that's related to sports where a sports medicine background would be helpful, but like not really what I was doing. That was really the idea behind getting a master's in something other than athletic training, you know? And I actually, you know, did schooling in exercise science as well. At GW, I took 36 credits in exercise science, but like most of it was geared around just like having something else to hang my hat on outside of athletic training because I wasn't sure at even at that point. So this is like 2010, 11 because I just didn't see the career prospects. You know, I'm looking at like, Oh, Hey, you know, Chad, you've been an athletic trainer for 10 years and you make $36,000 a year and you have a family. Like, how do you do that? Like I, that doesn't, it doesn't add up to me. Like how does that work? Not New York. Hell no. And so, yeah, I think I just started to see my value and that people would pay me. Um, and yeah, nobody ever came kicking down my door to shut me down. So here we are, 2019, starting the Movement Underground. You know, learned a lot in that former partnership about business and kind of like, but again, I learned a lot of the things like, oh crap, like after watching Gary Vee and reading business books and listening to business podcasts that are related to fitness or health or physical therapy or whatever wow, I'm doing a lot of things right. I'm doing a lot of things right, you know? And then the content started, you know, like just putting it out there. And that was a really struggle for me personally, but, you know, to put yourself out there like that, because there's definitely been moments where it hasn't been good. But for the most part, it's been awesome. And it gives us the opportunity to sit here and do something like this now, which is so really, it's really exciting for me to be able to jump into something new and be excited about it because I'm already past that point where I'm worried about what people say. Well, you're helping a lot of people. You're I hope helping so. a lot of people. We're helping a lot of people. You know, and again, so fast forward, like, so we're, I was like maybe a year or two into Recovery Lab at the time when you joined in. Um, and I think really when you came in, even as an intern, um, was really when things started to take off. When I finally had that person who was doing w- what I was doing, right? And I was really mentoring you at that time. So you were still learning a lot, but your perspective on things really helped me reframe kind of even my interactions with clients because like I got to see the business through your eyes kind of like, and you were always really good about sharing that. Like, Hey, have you thought about this in your content or did you see, you know, Gary V's putting subtitles in and you would just go out and figure out how to do that and then share it with me and how I could do it for my pages. So like even a lot of the evolution, like going back to that full circle, of like my content was inspired by you and how you were able to show me different things outside of my comfort zone and like help me with it. Right. And so even to now, which is where now, but you're, you know, I know I've been talking for like the last 30 minutes or whatever, but you know, really this, this whole thing is going to be, you know, more collaborative moving forward. So you should definitely expect to hear Anthony's voice more (laughs) on these podcasts. Eventually, Um, eventually. But I think we're going to get into some, some Q and a, right? Yeah, let's do that. That So we're going to, Jump on live. I'm actually going to pull up my Instagram live right now. That was perfect. That was great. And um, So again, if you guys ever have any questions on this stuff, so this will be available on YouTube in the video format. So that's our goal is to share it as a video format. So comment on that. Uh, we're also going to put it up, obviously, on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and everywhere podcasts are available as well as the website. Um, so please leave us comments and we'll definitely answer any questions that you guys have. Um, I might even create a page. I was thinking about this too on the Movement Underground website where you could like post a question in there and then we can answer it on the podcast for you guys. But we're going to go live on my Instagram. And let's see if anybody... So I posted a story that said we were going to do this. So let's see if we can get anybody to pop in. They're telling people that we're we're jumping on. 
Say what's up. Brian's listening in. He's got no mic because Amazon hasn't come yet with the wire. We all got our red shirts on. We got our red shirts on. Not by not on purpose though. We did not plan this. The red shirts are fire. Um, all the uh, equipment for the rock tape course this weekend. All the stuff. The blades, living in that corner. But yeah. So we got some people joining in. Um, so we're actually recording. We are live on Instagram, but we are recording our first podcast episode. We just finished that first episode. And now we just kind of wanted to do like a little bit of a live Q&A section. So if you guys have any questions for us uh, that we can answer, me and Anthony are on the mic. We would love to do that. Um, doesn't matter what it is. It could be manual therapy. It could be movement. It could be... I have a question for you. Sure. How tall do you think Babe Ruth was? How tall? Three, <laughs> two, How one. tall do I think Babe? Probably like five foot ten. <laughs> Did I get it? No, he's six two. He was six two. Damn, I should have Damn, not. so he was just a, a big human being then because he was a bulky guy yeah. from what I recall seeing in the pictures. Um, well, thank you, Siobhan. We got Siobhan said congrats on the first podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, nobody's asked anything yet, so we're just going to go live. Ask a question. Let's see if there's any question cards. Hold on. Sorry, I'm shaking this around. What is Brian's IG? And is he ticklish? So this is my foot fetish girl that always asks me questions, <laughs> the... which is kind of weird. Um, so we're not going to answer that question. You will not know if Brian's ticklish or not. Brian. <laughs> Good Lord. What is Good your Lord, girl. Get IG? your stuff together, man. Brian.Harder93. Brian.Harder93. Harder is Harder, his last name. Harder is his last name. So Brian is a athletic training student at Hofstra University, which is currently closed because of coronavirus. Don't get me started. We're not. Maybe we'll do a coronavirus episode, but like the college is closed and next week is spring break. So I guess they're hoping that in two weeks this goes away. <laughs> I guess that's why. We don't know. We don't know. Sweeping it under the carpet. Come on. Anybody got a question for us from Canada? What's up? VC athletic therapy. I have degenerative back damage, and I'm looking to strengthen my core. Really good one. That's also Siobhan. Siobhan, here's what I'm going to start you with. 80% of people that don't have back pain, this is like science, so we measured it like it's data. It's not an opinion. Research has shown us that if we were to take 50 people off the street, statistically speaking, that have never had low back pain in their life, never one day of low back pain, we gave them all an MRI, we would find 40 out of those 50 people, 80% in like a middle-aged age group would have degenerative disc disease or protrusions or these kinds of things in their lower back. So does strengthening your core help? Yes, but you know that needs to be defined a little bit because doing planks ain't going to fix that back pain. Um, generally speaking, people need to be able to move efficiently in all of the different areas of their body um, and, and being able to put all that stuff together. And so a lot of people lack core stability, which is not a strength thing. You know, you, you can't use a strength solution to a stability problem. So if you're not able to handle or accept force and your spine is taking the brunt of that, you're going to have some low back pain. Understanding that pain is just a, a signal, right? A pain is a, your brain's interpretation of threat. Um, and so really you'd have to get to the root of why perhaps you're using your back um, inappropriately or, or is your back, are you asking it to do things that it isn't capable of currently doing and then using your program to fill in that gap. Get assessed. Get assessed. Is Yes, absolutely is get assessed. Um, don't guess, assess. So definitely hit us up and if you want to come, we can do an assessment. We can teach you. Um, again, so like she asked, what exercises do we recommend? It's really hard. You can't answer that. It depends. That. It depends is the right answer um, you know, because we'd have to see what your unique scenario is. Like what are the variables in your equation that we think are leading to back pain and then teaching you strategies around that is really kind of, and that's really maybe a great segue into just kind of our treatment philosophy here, which is evaluate the whole person and treat the whole person, not just the meat suit or the diagnosis. Um, so if you have degenerative disc disease, honestly, that probably has very, very little bearing on what we would choose to do with you from a manual or exercise perspective. So it really comes down to, you know, what your, you know, linchpins are in the way that you move and then helping you solve that with strategies from there. 
cool. Um, I don't know, Brian, do you want to hold this and ask us the questions? You can scroll through. That's it. Yeah. Get it on Brian on there. And if you want to flip the camera around and put it on us, you can do that. If you don't want to be like having it face you, (laughs) if that's awkward for you. So I think it's like, I forget which button it is to flip the camera around, but you can do it. Flip it around and you can, there you you go. 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 And then you can ask us a question. Brian doesn't have a mic. So Anthony, we're gonna have to repeat the questions. Right, right, right. I thought I saw one on instruments, instrument-assisted stuff. Yeah, IASTM for adhesive capsulitis. Right. Any suggestions? What do you got, Ant? Suggestions. Um, it could it could potentially help. I yeah, mean. absolutely. It could help with symptoms, symptom modification. Um, capsular tissue is a tough, tough thing because it's not like it's easily accessible. It is accessible. Um, and this is really where we've incorporated a lot of FR principles, right? Oh, for sure is really kind of like at that capsule level, like, you know, uh, addressing mechanical inefficiencies within that dense connective tissue, but also neurologically getting the body to accept force and produce force really important. Right. So if that, if, uh, I've seen a lot of people diagnosed with adhesive capsulitis, but a lot out of a lot of those people, and I'm not going to give a number because I don't really have a number, but I would say most of them didn't actually have adhesive capsulitis. That was just the diagnosis that they were given, mm-hmm. you know, and that's super common. So my first question would be is, is it really adhesive capsulitis? That's a good question. And that takes an assessment. You know, you can't just rely yeah. on the script for that. If it is, we could definitely use instruments to, you know, do pain modification. We can use it to improve maybe the compliance of those superficial layers of tissue your superficial fascia and get these sliding gliding layers moving on each other again. Um, we can certainly use it to help with any muscle tension that you might be feeling. But if you have a capsular issue that needs a capsular solution, you know, gotta, that's where we would maybe take you to yeah. some of the FR stuff. Take you to the room where we do some FR stuff. But yeah, for sure. The instrument could knock on the door, maybe give us a doorway into ah, that capsule room. That. Yeah. And then we could start to, uh, See right. what's up. Right. So that takes like some end range joint work um, to address that. And so even now we had uh we had a, um, this is really common actually, a recent client. She's, you know, mom, you know, in her, in her forties, right. And had these shoulder issues and ended up having surgery and came to us with the diagnosis from a, a physical therapist in the area that she had, she had the beginnings of adhesive capsulitis. This was recent, like within the last month or two. And we assessed her, I assessed her. I'm like, you know what? You have really limited range of motion rotationally in the shoulder, but it doesn't really match adhesive capsulitis. Where's your surgical note? She gets me her surgical note. And she actually had a capsule revision done as part of her surgery, meaning that she was suffering from instability. And so what the surgeon did from a mechanical standpoint was basically fold the capsule over and stitch it together to reduce the amount of space inside the joint capsule. And what that does is mechanically influence how that joint moves and restricts it from being quote unquote unstable. But what he really did was tighten it to the point where it eliminated her baseline mobility. Right. And so now we've had to go through this process of like slowly trying to regain some compliance in that tissue. That's been so tightened down surgically that it's actually reduced range of motion to the point where basic movements are now painful for her. And so I think, again, like that's a situation where from a surgical perspective, that surgeon saw chronic instability, chronic damage was a result from that instability. I'm going to eliminate this problem for her again, trying to do her a favor. And he was even like bragging to her about it. Like, Oh, I really tightened it down. And what had happened in the aftermath of that is that she had just severely limited range of motion And so anytime she tried to do anything from like a fitness perspective, you know, she was basically shoving a, you know, a square peg in a round hole, you know? And so, um, again, I think misdiagnosis is very common. It's easy to mislabel something. And all of a sudden, because we've mislabeled it, now we're going down a totally different hole in terms of rehab and intervention that is maybe not going to be effective for you because you're not getting to the actual root. You're, You're making a lot of assumptions um, and that's what we just don't, we will, will not do that here. Like, we'll listen, you want to send me your surgical notes, your MRIs, I'll look at it. But 
that's only part of the equation, right? It's not the equation. I think that's where our healthcare system gets really hung up on is if you're going to go the insurance route, you go to your doctor to get a diagnosis, he's going to label it. Now that every treatment that you get after that is predicated 100% on that original diagnosis or label, man, there's a lot of room for error in that, right? Just a lot of room for error. Your take. Cause you know who I'm talking about. I do. Yeah, I do. I mean, it's just tough because uh, once that comes about and they have this idea in their head where right their you know their shoulder they went underwent the knife to get stability, the result, right. you know, and and I think that uh rigidity does not equal stability, right? So love that, dude. That's exactly what the scenario is where they've created rigidity in the joint by taking away space but to make it quote unquote more stable. But really, it's a double-edged sword. You need aspects of both. I love that. That's really eloquently put. Soundbite. Spina. <laughs> was that a Spina thing? That was a Spina quote? Yeah. Love that. So good. So good. What do you got, Bri? Uh, any advice for tactical athletes, police, and military athletes that we can't change the fact that they wear gear or get them out of their vehicles? So like police cruiser ergonomics. Yeah, man. Um, that's wow, actually a super great, great question. question. That's a great question. You want to start, Ant? You got anything off the top of your head? No, I don't. Do I've you? worked with a lot of ta- tactical athletes, military and police guys over the years, and, and that is a really common complaint, you know, especially for like, you know, we're in New York City. So like New York City cops wear body armor. They have a thick belt with all their like, you know, bat gear on it, you know, cuffs, spray, gun, radio, all that stuff. And they're sitting in the car and they have all this ancillary gear on and they do make ergonomic belts that like take the stuff from the back and put it around the front. Um, We'll talk about like just variability. And this is another reason why I like kind of the FR principles, but like getting out of the car, going through some hip range of motion, just moving, just breaking up that static posture with some movement throughout the day when and where you can. Um, I think being aware of that is 90% of the battle. Boom. You know, being aware of the fact that you're stuck in these positions and you have this gear on. Um, in terms of like training these athletes, again, it's part of their equation, right? It's part of like where they are as point A is like this is the scenario that they're using their body in cur- commonly. So you have to train them for that. And a lot of times, like, you know, like an athlete, like a go ruck person or, you know, obviously a tactical athlete that has to wear hundreds of pounds of gear, they don't get a choice in that. But they do choose the way they train. And so a lot of times when you have an overdose of intensity, which is a lot of the case of that, it's just it's a lot of weight, it's a lot of mileage, it's a lot of volume, you start to break down. And the mindset is do more of that to raise your ceiling for how much of it you can do when the truth might be to back off in your training a little bit more, prioritize maybe your mobility or stability deficits at a root baseline level that might actually um, provide more of a return on time investment than just beating yourself up further. Like do the basics, right? Nutrition, sleep, you know, um, and then your training should fill in deficits versus create more of them, you know? Love that. Yeah. Love that search for some aerobic capacity like you're saying yeah. hitting you know the it's not always a high intensity workout that's going to make you stronger can you elaborate on that because i know where you're kind of thinking so in terms of like cardiovascular endurance you've been diving in that rabbit hole a little bit a you little, give bit, us a little yeah. bit of a tip on i mean i just think that uh, it's very very common now to just jump right into an extreme high in, high intensity right. high in, uh, interval training right hit hit but um that's not how we were it's not what uh, evolutionary biology says we really need or like how we have Yeah, we evolved. prioritize that in the Instagram age because right. it's cool and it's different and it's novel, but it's not always what is required. Right. You right. know, it, it's part of the equation. It's part it's of part, the equation, But, right. you know, if you think that 20 minutes of hit is going to make you stronger throughout your off day, it's, it's tough. You're definitely missing a huge piece of the equation, which would sure. be training your aerobic capacity, you know, training the, the lower intervals of your cardiorespiratory endurance. Yeah. So it's like your lower heart rates, guys. Like it's not always about submax heart rate. But we'll definitely we sh- we're going to do an episode where we dive deeper into that breathing and cardiovascular endurance. I don't want to go too deep. This is just a Q&A, but that's really cool. It's another really good perspective is that you know, a lot of these high-performing athletes are really great at the high end of the spectrum, but they but they can and they can do that despite a lack of cardiovascular endurance at a base level. You know what I mean? 
So it's basically like revving the engine at redline. You're good at those higher RPMs, but you have a hard time dropping it down and going to cruise control and being efficient, right? So you need both aspects of that, which is really important. Cool. Any other ones before we start wrapping this up? I'm going to call that a win on the day overall. For sure. Um, Really, really cool. So glad we got all that in. Um, So again, for those of you guys listening, this was episode two technically, but it was really our first full episode. Um, I want to thank Anthony and for doing this. And obviously our goal is to do this once per week. Brian for hanging out and helping us film and uh, being our interpreter. Um, you know, obviously this podcast is brought to you by the Movement Underground. So if you are in our area and you want to come see us, you can book an, ass- an evaluation online at themovementunderground.com. Um, you can also book a virtual consultation if you're not in our area and you just want to maybe get a different perspective and ch- chat about what your issues are. And we can give you some more information there and coach you virtually. So you can check that on the website as well. Um, definitely go follow us on our social handle. So the YouTube channel, which was rebranded is the movement underground. So you can go check out, we're going to put this video up on that channel as well. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Mike Stella underscore ATC. You can follow Anthony at move with Pranzo move with Pranzo, um, on Instagram and Twitter as well. Uh, we already gave you Brian's handle, but we'll plug him one more time at Brian.harder93. Sick. Um, so you can go give him a little follow and love and tell him all the good things about him. And then, uh, like I said, check out us out on the website at themovementunderground.com. Or if you want to learn more about my teaching tours, when I'm going to be on the road at rock tape next, uh, you can go check out mikestellamovement.com. So we will be reaching out to some people and getting some guests on. So we're really excited for that. Stay tuned. We'll release a guest list for the podcast as well, which will be under the media section at themovementunderground.com. Thanks, guys, for listening. We'll talk to you guys later. Peace.